This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. We're almost... And Christopher's really amazing facial expressions. (laughs) I don't know what's going on over there. (laughs) Don't break the third wall. Is it third or fourth wall? Which wall? This is a voice podcast. There are no walls. (laughs) We are a podcast without walls. (laughs) Podcasters Without Walls. Podcasters. It's our new send $10,000 to our new nonprofit. <laughs> to buy us lunch. Right. A better lunch. At a much nicer restaurant. We just had lunch. And sometimes when we do an, quite an episode after we've had lunch, things get a little goofy. In As here. opposed to the way they usually are. In here <laughs> everybody is dead serious. I'm, our last episode was pretty damn serious. We got it, real serious. Because we serious. seriously hated that. <laughs> Those movies in that scumbag who yes. was trying to claim the credit for something he didn't do, and it was not about the murder we were actually trying to cover, and you had to apologize. for Because it was a TV movie, and I promised you I wouldn't pitch you any more TV movies. But we're almost done with the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival. This is our final region of the United States. We only have two more weeks to go. It's practically, <laughs> it's practically over any minute. In my mind, I'm already done. Because this is what we discovered along the way. We discovered that there are actually not a lot of good movies based on true crimes. Well, I think we've discovered that in in an expansive kind of way as with the whole true crime movie time thing, which was, as I recall, I mentioned this last week, I think it's part of the reason we started doing it was to kind of debunk Mm -hmm. the claims of some of these movies to be based on the crimes. Right. So last week we talked about a movie that purported to be about the Green River Killer case called The River Man. It was really about how one detective who couldn't get Bundy on the murders he committed in the Pacific Northwest used the Green River case to finance his trips to Florida to interview him. To save his failed career because he didn't get to bust Ted Bundy for the crimes he was actually guilty of. And so even though he did absolutely nothing to help solve the Green River murder case or help any of those poor women... Um, he did, in fact, get to self-aggrandize himself by getting Ted Bundy to cop to those murders, getting it on the record, and then getting a book publishing deal and a movie deal. But, yeah, other than that, it had nothing whatsoever to do 
Green River murder, so he was hideous. And it reinforced the notion that that lying sack of shit, Dave Reichert, right. who was apparently governor? He's running for governor. Oh, okay. Well, don't vote for him. He's a liar. He had nothing to do with solving yep. that crime. And so who needs another liar in office? I mean, they're probably most of them liars, but the ones we can prove are liars. At least we can pull them out of the pool. Well, I'll tell you, there's some of the detail I left out. We were talking about how he has used the fault that false narrative about how he solved the Green River Killer case to build a political career on. He right. also was instrumental in passing a law. And Tom Kavanaugh fell for it. In passing a law against murderabilia, right? People selling artifacts from true crime scenes or evidence from true crime scenes. And yet he used a campaign photo. He he used a photo of him posed at one of the crime scenes in his campaign literature. So a lot of people thought that was hypocritical, if you will. <laughs> at, at the very least. Yeah. If not, if he got the bill passed, criminal. So this week... And next week, we thought we would do a lighter story. Right. We're trying to go out on a breezier story. Because we've done a lot of really... We have done We have done in the course of this tour, even though our considerations were regional each time out, we have done some of the, I'm going to call them edifying true crime stories that we had not yet talked about. We've done some brutal true crime stories over the, the course of this festival. The Robin Hill, uh, Robin Hood Hill murders Which in Arkansas. were a miscarriage of justice and hideous murders. Yes. Uh, we finally did the Green River Killer who... The, maybe the most prolific serial killer in the history of mankind. We did Zodiac. Which, Jesus Christ... Um, we did, what am I leaving out? What am I forgetting? Where did we start? We started in California. We did Badlands. We did Hillside Stranglers. Hillside We'd Strangler. never talked about them. So we've really done a lot of really dark, heavy, disturbing There's cases. There's been some real stuff going on here, yeah. So in the annals of true crime, the D.B. Cooper story is maybe as light as it gets. Honestly, D.B. Cooper has risen to become almost like an urban legend. Mm -hmm. It's... It is taken on, and I think that's that was kind of my takeaway from this, this documentary that we're we're starting with. It's called uh, the Mystery of DB Cooper. It is streamable on Max, otherwise known as HBO Max. Yes, Max is the name of the adorable child of a friend of ours, and <laughs> HBO Max is the name of that streaming service. I don't care what they're saying. <laughs> anyway, um, this kind of presented it. In that sort of light, it's, mm -hmm. it is as though we are looking at it. In it is an unsolved crime. We don't even actually know who DB Cooper is or was, or if he existed or not. Um, and uh, this is some looks, some possible looks at that. But it begins to become almost a myth, the myth of DB Cooper, mm -hmm. more than it is even really a crime. And you know, spoiler alert, nobody is brutally murdered or stabbed or strangled yes. or bludgeoned or anything else during the course of this thing. The only person who might have actually suffered any harm may or may not have been D.B. Cooper, which you will see how that would have occurred yes, during exactly. the course of it. And we're not even sure that happened. But here's what we are sure of. Ish. Ish. Thanksgiving Eve, 1971. A hijacker named D.B. Cooper. Or who claimed to be. A hijacker identifying themselves as D.B. Cooper. Demands a $200,000 ransom and 
I wrote a million dollars. I wrote ten parachutes. That's wrong. Four parachutes. Yes, ten would have been excessive even for DB. Oh, I see what I was doing. And then parachutes out the rear door of a 727 flying between Portland and Seattle. But he asked for four parachutes, which right. kind of put the flight crew on notice that they might be jumping out of their own plane. No trace of him has ever been found. The case is still the only unsolved act of air piracy in American history. Okay, so with that being, those are the only really that's it known facts. But this documentary is going to do like the Gary Ridgway documentary. It's got a split structure, which is it goes through the known events of the flight itself, and then it it sets up three, I think, or four potential suspects for DB Cooper. And the, I'm just sitting there the whole time thinking. I cannot wait to hear who Eric votes for as the final suspect. So it's got a back and forth structure. I don't know if we'll stick so to that. So we're going to save my take we'll, on Oh, yeah, till the, the end. Okay. We're going to get through it. But I don't know if I'm going to do the back and forth as much. I think we're going to just you, you do, do whatever. You, you do what you do. Right. You do you, and I'll do my thing at the end. So, but I don't know if I should go too far off my notes. They're so good already with the missing letters and the 10 parachutes. I really, I think it opens with Joe Weber is interviewed on her ugly sofa. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, this is starting off on just the right note. So please go from there, okay. from Joe's ugly sofa. So we get that title card that I basically just read you. Thanksgiving Eve, 1971, hijacker, parachutes out the plane, $200,000. Okay. Then we immediately go to the establishment of the first potential suspect. And we're, we interview Joe Weber on her ugly sofa. Um, she says on March 27th, 1978, she married suspect number one, who was identified as such with a title card, Dwayne Weber. He died in 1995 in the hospital three days before he died of kidney disease. Joe goes to adjust his pillow and he begins rambling semi-incoherently. And at this point, during Joe's interview, a man named Tim Collins enters, who is identified as Joe's memory man. He, if he'd been Tom Collins, he could have been an enormous vodka drink. Exactly. He began, which I suspect Joe had one of immediately prior to this interview. <laughs> he begins to recount the story for her. And apparently as Duane was rambling in his hospital bed, what became his deathbed, he tried to tell her that he had injured himself years ago jumping out of a plane. And then he told her, I'm Dan Cooper. I love you. Those were his last words. So she called the FBI. She called Naturally, the FBI on her like dead husband. Just like you do from your husband's deathbed. So then we start to go to the timeline of the flight itself, and that begins with an interview of Tina Mucklow. And I'm going to ask just— I'm getting Eric's two fingers, just a little two raised fingers. Just a little yes. question here just for clarity. Yes. Did the FBI weigh in at all on Joe's story <laughs> during the course of this? Okay, just checking. Just a little fact check I don't there. Think they okay. Ever. Okay. So let's go on from there. We interviewed Tina Mucklow, and she was an air stewardess on the plane. This was my favorite part of the story. Cooper hijacked. Of this, this special. She was 20 or 21. She doesn't quite remember, which seemed odd. But good for her, because she's been lying about her age so long, it's tough to really count backwards. We're treated to, as I describe it in the notes, the rank objectification of female flight attendants. 
You can't gain weight. You can't get pregnant. If you get married, you're basically fired. Was it if you get married, you're fired? Or if you get married and pregnant, you're fired? I can't remember. She said, even if you're married, if you get pregnant, you get fired. Gee, oh, those so are the you days. could be married, but you couldn't gain weight or get pregnant. Yeah. Because, yes, it really was a different time, folks. And I know that seems like a cop-out, but it really was. It was very different. doesn't make time. it was okay, but it means that's how we did things then. It was shitty. But it was also a time when hijacking was a far friendlier endeavor. It was a much more prevalent and kind of almost this jovial kind of... The way it's presented is like yeah. this kind of laughing because they ended so peacefully. There was never any really. They would go to Ken, they would go to Cuba. Everybody would get a bottle of rum and a box of cigars, and then they would be flown back to the United States because you couldn't fly to Cuba otherwise. And right. then they would arrest whoever it was when they got there because how else would it? But I don't remember any of them ending up until Entebbe until the the yes. The, the, the Entebbe thing in, in Israel, I don't mm. remember any of them ending in violence or any other kind yeah. of unpleasant situation. But that was terrorists. Okay, but this is different, allegedly. So we're at Portland International Airport on Thanksgiving Eve, 1971. We also interview William Raddix. Raddix I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He was the co-pilot, Bill. We're going to call him co-pilot Bill. Right. Uh, he's the one who gives us some more information about uh, bloodless hijackings. We also interview Bill Mitchell, who was a young passenger at the time, who was sitting across the aisle from where D.B. Cooper, the man claiming to be D.B. Cooper, uh, was sitting. And it's really insight into the time the time period, because this is Thanksgiving Eve, and the plane didn't seem like it was that crowded. We're, okay, 1971, right? What are your memories so. of 1971? What was your relationship to air travel in 1971 as a child? Um... My relationship to air travel. <laughs> Did you travel well, as a jet as a jet setting <laughs> six year old? <laughs> Just say that. Did you guys go on planes? Like I remember going on planes as a very little boy, but I, this was 19, early eighties. You know, this was that was later. It was more common by then, but it was not unheard of. I mean, we flew to Baton Rouge when we moved there. You remember I always tell that story mm -hmm. of driving into Columbia, South Carolina, mm. um, from flying out of Baton Rouge and landing in Columbia, we were driving into town, and I was like, was there a fire recently? Because the trees were all, like, four feet tall. I yeah. was like, where am I? Where have we moved? Because in Louisiana, you know, trees are right. these giant, monolithic, massive trunk things. And mm -hmm. in South Carolina, there's sand and shitty pine trees. And so it was this, this hideous drive into the city. I was, like, was there a fire? We've just lost our sponsorship deal with the state of South Carolina. Yeah, they were really all in. <laughs> Nikki Haley canceled her deal Absolutely. with Absolutely. It's a wonderful day in South Carolina, yeah. particularly if you're leaving and getting a job in Washington. <laughs> all right. So let's get back to this plane. Okay, so you weren't allowed on plane. You were on the no-fly list as a seven-year-old. We were flying. I mean, but it wasn't as common. Like, it was a bigger deal to go and fly. And flying, the nature of flying was, yeah. even on through college, was much nicer. There was, yeah. the, the service was nicer. And crowded was not a thing. Yeah, okay. So the plane is clearly not crowded. Obviously. Cooper is sitting, or the high, let's call him the hijacker is sitting in the middle of two empty seats in the back row. And we're about to come up on my favorite part of the story. <laughs> 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Okay, this is my favorite part of the story, and I'm going to call this the tale of two flight attendants. Yeah, I told you you could say it again. <laughs> the tale, I, know, I can say I can repeat myself after a break. Okay, so Cooper is sitting, the hijacker is sitting in the middle seat of the back row on the right-hand side of the plane. He hands a note to a flight attendant named Florence Shafter, who they later refer to as Flo, who was tending to passengers as they entered. And she says, kiss back grits. Basically. And she stomps off down the aisle. She thinks he's hitting on her, so she pockets the note and puts it away until it, they begin their roll down the runway, or their taxi, I should say. Then she decides to take out the note and, uh, or no, she passes him a second time and he says, miss, I want you to read that note. And it's not sounding flirty. So Flo takes her seat, reads the note, and it says, miss, you've been hijacked. I've got a bomb. Come sit next to me. Somehow Tina, the other flight attendant, ends up sitting next to him, and Flo just kind of absents herself from the picture. Flo is like, I got the note. I'm not doing anything else with this crazy guy. And I am not going out with him. I don't care if he does have a bomb. Can, can you imagine, like, Flo just manages to somehow convince Tina to then, because Tina is going to have a long journey with this man as a result of this very Tina decision. Tina can see herself on documentaries for years to come. <laughs> And news coverage and interviews, and she says, I'll do it, and takes the note and walks back and says, I assume they, they're they sitting next to each other during takeoff when she gives her the note, and it was after takeoff that she walked back and sat with him. I don't know that, but I don't but know. maybe, because the, the, they take off first. The important detail is that they're, I think they're in their jump seats beginning takeoff when they read the note. They let the captain know, and by the time they've let the captain know, they've already started their role, and there's no aborting takeoff. Yeah. So they were literally on the ground when they, when he threatened them with a bomb, but there was no turning but back. But it was the last minute, and so they actually took off. So Tina goes and sits next to him. The guy opens up the briefcase and shows her what looks like two sticks of dynamite and wire strapped together with electrician's tape, and there's a large battery inside. And he tells her he will not be taken alive. They also interview the second officer. I don't know if I'm right about this, but I think the flight deck flight crew probably had three people in those days. I think you had a pilot, a co-pilot, and a, sec, a first officer. I love second the officer. hopeful way your eyebrows went yeah. up as though I might have <laughs> any information about this. Yeah, sure, uh, possibly. Somebody to go get snacks. You know. <laughs> it's not it. All the other two are it's flying like the plane. It's like in Airport 1975. I'm going to use an Airport 1975 reference. There's Ephraim Zimblast Jr., there's the co-pilot who gets sucked out the plane during the collision. And there's Eric Estrada, who's the engineer, I think, who's flirting with everybody. And and, and going to get snacks. The, he, doesn't, he tries to make a snack out of the flight attendants inappropriately, and he's married, and that's why he dies. It's like horror movie rules, that's, yeah. but for 70s disaster movies. Okay, 
So uh, clearly the pilot is either sick of being interviewed about D.B. Cooper for documentaries or he's no longer with us. He just wasn't having any of it. <laughs> he didn't pay him. I'm enough. not talking to any more hijackers. No, <laughs> you deal with it. No, this is for the documentary because he's not interviewed. But maybe he didn't have anything to do with D.B. Cooper when he had the chance. Mm-hmm. He left the co-pilot handle it. I'm busy. I'm flying this plane. So he's smoking and he's ordered a drink. Because and- you could still do that on airplanes then. And Tina lights several of his cigarettes because... Because she, flight attendants actually did that thing. No, because she doesn't want him to take his finger off the trigger of what she thinks is a bomb. In a briefcase. She's like, sir, no, 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 I'll get your cigarette. It's fine. Just but, keep your finger there. But flight attendants actually did that. Did they really? Oh, yeah. It was. How would you know? Because nobody... Because people were still smoking long into... My flying career as an adult. But you weren't allowed on planes as a seven-year-old. You'd been a behavioral problem, well, clearly. I, I, you know, came up with an alternate identity <laughs> to fly under. <laughs> Snooty sixth grader. Snooty sixth grader in your corduroy jacket with the elbow patches. That's the one. Okay. So then, because things are just starting to get exciting, and this is a documentary that probably had stupid studio notes from executives, we cut away from this, because that's the new trend, to the introduction of suspect number two. And suspect number two is introduced for us in the present, in description, by a married couple named Pat Foreman and Ron Foreman. And they had a a small private plane of their own, and they were frequently using a small regional airport. And at the airport, they noticed a woman who routinely sat by herself in her parked car after flying her own plane around. And she introduced herself, or the couple introduced themselves to her, and she said, I'm Barbara Dayton. They become friends, and Pat starts to get the sense that Barbara is trans. Pat doesn't have that language at her disposal, apparently, even though this documentary was filmed recently. So we're going to use the appropriate language but for Pat her. But Pat doesn't, so heads up if, heads you, up. Just, if you watch the special. Yeah. It's not bad, and they're not ugly about it at all, but it just is not as yeah. you know current, let's say, with their terminology. It's like your Aunt Pat trying to riddle through what the kids think these days. Uh-huh. So they're having dinner with her at the house, and Barb seems to detect Pat's suspicions and stops talking mid-sentence and says to Ron, Pat's husband, well, your wife knows now. And that's when she reveals to them that she was born um, biologically a man and she was the first person to have a sex change operation in the state of Washington. They discuss the subject of D.B. Cooper a lot because it's a very popular topic in the Washington state area. And when... Because what else are you going to talk about if you're in Washington? The Boeing closure? (laughs) Or Microsoft or Amazon. I'm sorry, not in this time period. <laughs> oh, that's right. It was a long time ago. Yes. And the Boeing closure was a big fucking deal. We're going to get to that. It was. Yeah. Because um, they didn't have Microsoft or Amazon, <laughs> any of that shit. That's why they had all that labor waiting to go when those things did decide to open up there. Well, maybe if law enforcement could have done something other than keep you off airplanes as a six-year-old, they would have been able to, it I don't know, would have saved them hire. so much time, but it was really impossible. I was, If I was determined to fly, there was no way they were going to stop me. I was a wily six-year-old. All right, so Ron Foreman jokingly accuses Barbara of being D.B. Cooper, because Barbara is always so defensive on the topic of D.B. Cooper, which I guess means she believes he had a right to take $200,000 and jump out of and the plane. And definitive. Yeah. They have dinner with another couple, and they're joking around about the subject again. And Barbara allows them to put sunglasses on her and sweep her hair to the side. 
And in this moment, the resemblance between her and D.B. Cooper or the composite sketch of D.B. Cooper is so uncanny that the wife of the other couple starts to panic and scream, we're all going to be arrested, we're all going to be arrested. And she freaks out, and I think she runs out of the house. Which so they were stoned. They're And high. So black beauties and some marijuana yes, are happening. Yes, at least. Absolutely. So allegedly, according to the foremans, Barbara took that moment to confess to them that she was indeed Dan Cooper, and she describes in detail details of the jump, claims she landed in a field near Woodburn, which is close to I-5. And so we leave her as suspect number two, and we return to the events of the flight aboard Northwest Orient Flight 305. I assume that's what became Northwestern Airlines. Yes. Oh, well, there's an airline question you can answer confidently. I didn't get attitude and tone on that one there, so, okay. Um, now I'm getting punishing silence, apparently. No, it was because they just came finally went, this is the stupidest name. <laughs> Northwest Eastern Airlines? Like, yeah. what are we talking about? Oriental literally means Eastern. Right. So, yeah, they just decided they would just go with one direction on the compass. <laughs> Confused airline, right. multi-directional airline. <laughs> Don't know right. which way is up airlines. Okay, so. Wrong way airlines, that's it, wrong ways. So they've departed at 2.50 p.m. They're supposed to have a 37-minute flight to Seattle. Once they're into the climb, here we go back to the chronology, Flo brings the note with the demands to the cockpit. So I guess they were send, sending an emergency signal of some sort, excuse me, some sort during the roll, and that's when the pilots couldn't abort. But they didn't get the demand letter until they were technically airborne. Okay, so the demand includes a request for four parachutes, fuel trucks to be standing by when the plane lands, and two hundred thousand dollars of non-negotiable currency. I have to say, I began this story well, thinking not non-negotiable. Oh, I thought that's what they said. What is non-negotiable? That I don't means even know you can't it spend it. I don't oh. think anybody would want non-negotiable currency. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's negotiable. I just take the notes. I don't make them up. I just write what I hear. Well, it apparently you made up that part about <laughs> non-negotiable because. Nobody would ask for that. Well, I don't know. Want, that I think, would be like monopoly money or something. <laughs> I, want, I want fake money. Every any old hijacker in the world asks for real money. I want, I want fake money. Two hundred thousand in fake dollar bills. All right, I'm, whatever. Okay, so the but the flight crew is getting really nervous because they think the four parachutes means the hijacker is planning for more people to jump for out them of the plane. All to jump out of the plane. And so that's the number of flight crew i guess or that's because Flo got off the plane <laughs> wait you're jumping ahead i know but that's you know spoiler alert so tina decides to do the like try to be a christian about this she says she prayed for the hijacker she prayed for all the people on the plane she prayed for herself but she starts to ask him questions she says do you have a grudge against the airline and he says no but i do have a grudge and that's it. That seems to be the sum total of what well, he says. I think to all of us could say that, huh? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think the grudge is that he kept asking people for non-negotiable currency. Hey, and they he kept giving it to him. He realized that what it meant after he tried to spend some monopoly money at the 7-Eleven. So the plane lands in Seattle at 5.45 p.m. The money's brought out. The parachutes are brought out. One flight attendant is allowed to leave. Guess which one it is. It's Flo. It's Flo. Bye, Flo. <laughs> Bye, Flo. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> but they ask Cooper, will you let the passengers leave? And he says yes. Because they'd given him the money already, so he was actually very amenable once that had happened. 
The passengers had no idea what was happening until they landed and the money was brought aboard. And I think they show several interviews with passengers who were like, "Yeah, we just got off the plane, and then they told us it was yeah." Not, yeah. They said it was they, you know, there was no big deal. They had to return and land because there was some sort of mechanical difficulty, but there was no problem, and they would be back on the ground in a few minutes and then on their way. And then after, then once they landed, they realized, "Oh, this is we've been hijacked!" Oh my God! And they got off the plane and put them on a bus and took them to a different plane and it was a 37 minute flight from yeah from, i've done it from where to where from portland, from portland to, to seattle it's like you do it in the the time i did it was on a propeller plane and we flew over mount st helens which was sort of slowly erupting at the time it was an exciting journey it's a very short flight but now i don't think you'd get on a 727 to do it horizon airlines is a big kind of commuter uh, plane up there. And so when I say propeller plane, it's not like it was a Cessna, but it was like the underwing propellers that were like low. <laughs> it's not my favorite flight experience, but I did it on a I wish tour. you all could see all of the descriptive <laughs> hand gestures that have accompanied this, you know, but the twirling fingers. Is That's why we have to start basic. doing video and get on TikTok with the children and the dogs. Because I've been so resistant to doing video. It's just a lot we have. We got to do makeup well, so and many hair. Things. It's like, and we're not kids anymore. Anyway, okay. Um, we're going to wear rubber masks. <laughs> No, we'll just use filters. We'll be like the Pokemon people for That's our whole clip. Great, absolutely dogs. Dogs, absolutely playing poker and doing a podcast. We have a dog cast. Okay, so because things are getting exciting again, we cut away to set up another potential suspect in the present. We meet Marla Cooper, who is a stunning, ravishing older woman who tells us that in 1971 she was eight years old and living in her grandmother's home in Oregon, and her uncles L.D. and Dewey were there visiting, and she just loved them both because they were fun, and they would go out in the woods with her and play. L.D. Cooper is suspect number three. <clears throat> she says her uncles are rowdy and joking around about how they're going to shoot a turkey for Thanksgiving, and it's clear to her, even as an eight-year-old, that the turkey is a metaphor for something, but they won't tell her what it is. The next morning, a car pulls up, and she runs out of the house and up to the window, and there's her uncle, L.D., nearly unconscious, in a shirt that has blood all over it. And she hears Uncle Dewey say, we did it. We hijacked the plane. Our money problems are over. Her father sits her down after they leave and swears her to secrecy. Like you do with an eight-year-old. <laughs> All right, now be sure to be real quiet about this. Don't tell anybody about the plane hijacking. <laughs> And your uncle covered, arriving covered with blood on Thanksgiving morning. Right. Okay, so we go back to the flight. We got the money on board, and Cooper is demanding that the plane fly to Mexico City. It departs Seattle at 7.36 p.m. It has a planned stop to refuel in Reno. Because that's as far as they can fly. I was like, really? <laughs> Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. 
That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? The plane has taken off from Seattle. On board are the flight crew and poor Tina, the one remaining flight attendant. The champion of this entire story. Right. Um, the plane is flying south to Mexico City, but it has to stop to refuel in Reno. <laughs> <laughs> Why does that crack you up? It's just it's like, wow, <laughs> things have really changed. They really have, yeah. Okay, so then the hijacker suddenly demands of the flight crew that they lower the plane's altitude to $10,000, and they put... I'm sorry, 10,000 feet. 10,000 feet. <laughs> We're coming in hot at $10,000. <laughs> Flaps and gear down, and that's when the flight crew realizes that the hijacker is going to make an attempt to jump. They're afraid of how the plane is going... It wasn't when he asked for four parachutes. <laughs> It was when they asked him to put the flaps down and lower the landing gear. It's I like, just, okay, I would have been, I would have think the the parachutes would have been a bit of a tip off, but sure. So he's also going to ask them to lower the stairs out of the rear of the plane, um, which is how people got on planes in those days. You walked across the tarmac and went up the back stairs into the ass end of the plane. No recollection of that ever well, happening. you were not allowed on planes because you were a disciplinary problem. Vast flying experience from the period. So, if this is my favorite part of the... It's not my favorite part of the story, but I thought this was a telling part of the story. He turns to Tina, the flight attendant, and says, will you lower the stairs for me? And she's like, I guess her face said it all. Like, you're going to... Okay, if we're 10,000 feet. You're going to open up the back door of the plane and you have a parachute, and I'm supposed to stand here in my flight attendant's uniform. Hold on real tight yeah. and open the back door in the stairs. And she was like, he was like, oh, okay, I get it. So he says, never mind, I'll do it. Go up front. So he sends her up to the cockpit. This is all very important because it means nobody on that plane watched the hijacker jump out the back of the plane or saw the, his descent or his fall. Okay, so the most pivotal moment of this whole story had zero witnesses. So he opens the door, uh, and then he calls the flight crew on the phone to say the stairs won't come down because of the wind. I love that. He's, like, issuing complaints like he's in a hotel. 
Can you? I don't, I don't and know my co- and my tea has gone cold. <laughs> Bring me some more pigs in a blanket. The pilot slows the plane down, thinking that'll help. And then the stairs open, and there is a they as I guess as they lock into place or they fall into place, they really rattle the airframe of the plane. This is all done, I, I would say, remarkably well. The reenactments that they do with a plane cabin and lighting is like uh, pretty compelling. Uh, there's a pressure bump in their ears, which tells them, you know, the door is open. And the the pilot said, the co-pilot says, "Mark your screen because I think our friend just took leave of us." This is the moment when he left the plane. So that's it. That's really all we know. <laughs> so then there's a. So afterwards, there's a, a a sharpie mark on the screen at the. It's like the plane is still moving, so marking the screen wouldn't actually have any real. Effect. I think it's a pilot's term. I don't think it's literal. I just I, think it's I, like I know what he meant. Look, yeah, yeah, you're like, just being sassy, is what you're being. If you mark on a, if you draw a mustache on a character on a television screen. <laughs> It's not going to be very effective because the character will move and then the mustache is just sitting there on the screen. Yes. That's kind of what I mean. Okay, so now we get into the the Seattle of it all, if you will. We're told that Seattle has just at the time of this event gone through something called the Boeing bust. The company has laid off 60,000 people. The economy is so distressed, a local billboard says, will the last person out of Seattle please turn off the lights? I remember this. I can tell the Chamber of Commerce did not take out that one. Uh, we're introduced to Jeffrey Gray, who wrote a book called Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. He tells us that the people of Seattle were losing their jobs to big machines and big corporations. And these people, all when they heard the story of Cooper, D.B. Cooper, they considered him a rebel who had committed an act of defiance, a man who beat the system. And that is really going to be the tone for a lot of what follows, including the movie about this we're going to talk about in our next episode. So foreshadowing in Washougal, uh, Washington, a rural part of the state. Um, <laughs> don't make fun of my little accent. Rural, rural. There's a whole community of people who are obsessed with D.B. Cooper and who walk the woods where he might have landed to find evidence. And one of them, and possibly the only sane person <laughs> in this documentary next to Tina and the flight crew, is Jerry Thomas, who says D.B. Cooper is dead as a doornail because nobody could have. This jump was happening at night. I think it was dark out. And raining. Dark and raining. And he jumps out of a plane at 10,000 feet into very isolated in woods. Into in the no- woods. In November. Yeah, it's it was it would have been quite the challenge. Um, we, are, we meet Frank Montoya Jr., who's a retired FBI agent who was in charge of the Seattle office from 2014 to 2016. And given those dates and his presence, it's a sign that nobody ever shut up at the Seattle office about the story of D.B. Cooper. <laughs> Ever. Even if they had nothing to add to the case. Or were asked not to speak about it to the press. So um, we then get into, I, what is this, suspect number four? Is this the last of the four suspects? Richard McCoy. Richard McCoy. And we're introduced to a man named Ben. I'm not going to try it. Ben. Ben. His last name is very multisyllabic. He was in the uh, National Guard with a man named Richard McCoy. The, uh, ben was in the Special Forces, and McCoy was in the Engineers. But he would often fly to get. They would often fly together. McCoy was a Mormon. He was a group leader in Vietnam and considered a war hero. And he talked a lot about hijackings. But these types of conversations weren't out of the ordinary for men like them because they were involved in doing things like planning raids as military exercises and preparing for things like hijackings. But these conversations were happening after the Cooper story hit the news. 
1972, five months after Cooper's disappearance, McCoy hijacks a passenger jet out of Denver bound for Los Angeles. We meet Nick O'Hara, a retired FBI agent, who tells us that McCoy basically pulled the exact same routine as Cooper, but for about a half million bucks. So several hundred thousand Inflation more. Inflation was rampant in the period. But, but it was negotiable this time. So that's what <laughs> added to the value of it. Yes. But he also requested four parachutes, an odd detail. But he was proficient at deploying the air stairs. He didn't hit the problems Cooper was alleged to have hit. And McCoy lands in Provo, Utah. His old friend Ben calls the FBI, and when they go to his house, they find the money up in the attic. So his old friend Ben basically ratted him out as soon as he heard the story of a skyjacker and said, that's McCoy. And Richard really hadn't thought this all the way through. Yes. But now we go back to the D.B. Cooper flight, which finally lands in Reno. Tina, the flight attendant, says the aftermath doesn't really hit her until she gets in the FBI car and she starts to sob and burst into tears. And this was a part of the story where I could see it coming from a mile away. They hurry the plane back to Seattle because it's still got the passenger's luggage on it. Now, if this were today, that plane would not have left the tarmac for Ever. a week. It might still be there. They would have dusted it and whatever. And as a result, shock of shocks, the forensic evidence from the plane is almost non-existent. <laughs> Before they fly it back, they have the plane cleaned so that passengers can load and go on. Because it is the holidays, and they've got a lot of flights scheduled. Absolutely. Yeah, whatever. So, uh, Norjack becomes the FBI's code name for the search operation, which begins in an area that roughly corresponds to where the flight crew felt the bump they assumed was Cooper jumping. Um, <clears throat> we meet a man named Bruce Smith... <laughs> who, um, you know, backwoods lunatic might be a little bit extreme, but he literally does live in the backwoods, and he's written a book called D.B. Cooper and the FBI. Uh, he tells us Cooper had 40 hours of lead time before anyone was on the ground looking for him, which that is true, right? You're nodding because it's correct. Uh, Bill Mitchell, the passenger who was sitting across the aisle from him, says he's visited by the FBI relentlessly. He's shown a ton of composite pictures one of the FBI agents remarks on how much he looked like the sketch because the sketch just didn't have any remarkable characteristics in it. It had none. It none. Had, no. It looked like generic picture of man. Man from 70s. With thinning hair. White yeah. man from 70s. Yes, that was it. So Bruce Smith points out what we already talked about. Despite being somewhat of a backwoods eccentric, he says, there were no forensic evidence. The cigarette butts that he was smoking, which could today be tested for DNA, were lost. There were issues with fingerprinting on the plane. They didn't tell us what the issues were, but I assume it had something to do with rushing the plane back and filling it with I, more people. I think people. the issues were they didn't take any. Eight and a half years after the skyjacking, the investigation has no hard evidence until in 1980, a kid finds three bundles of cash on a beach on the Columbia River, and they're able to trace the serial numbers on this very damaged money to the ransom money. But to this day, nobody knows how or when the money got to that beach, and it's incredibly damaged, so other forensic studies can't really be done on the money beyond the tracing of the serial numbers. And they dug up the beach and completely contaminated the scene, and so they don't really get anything else, and they don't find any more money. The beach is also 45 miles south of where Cooper supposedly landed. Okay. So it's now time. We've completed the narrative of the flight completely. So now we have to go back and check in with all of our potential suspects, <laughs> which brings us back to Pensacola, Florida, and a woman named Joe, who was, we started with her on the ugly sofa. 
And the story that she basically tells about her husband, Dwayne Weber, and I'm going to summarize it a bit because I don't want to get too lost in the weeds because they do. Um, they took a trip to Seattle where she believes, what she basically says to us is that Dwayne went off on his own, um, accessed the money, which for reasons that are not clear, he had left in the Pacific Northwest for years. They were driving together, drove to a river, she assumed just to take a little break in their drive, and he threw, he had some brown paper bags in the back of the car, which he told her was just trash he needed to throw away. She's standing on the side of the river with him, and she sees one of the brown bags floating down the river and says, what are you doing? You don't litter. She gets very passionate about this. You don't litter. And he's like, oh, uh, it's nothing. And then her memory man, the young man who's been helping her piece these, yes. Her recovered memories. Um, shows for us on a map how they were this spot where they supposedly went, which they have no actual hard evidence that they went to. They just Joe's account was right around the bend in the Columbia yeah, River from like where the money was Twenty years later, Joe's right. account. Okay, so um, they also find a tax return from Dwayne's personal papers, which shows that he purchased two cars using cash right around the time of the crime, and it was a year when he made a reported a thousand dollars in income. When he's dying, he hands over his will to Joe, along with a key to a safety deposit box taped to it. In the box, they find a copy of Soldier of Fortune magazine, and there's an article in there headlined, The Man Who Held the Secrets. Not sure what this was like. I, I don't know. This was a little Hollywood for me. Like, the, was the magazine supposed to be a clue that he was giving them? I don't know. Okay. Uh, let's see. Did I leave anything out of Joe's story before we move on to the other side? Your eyes are rolling back into you. I know which suspect you were not voting for. Possibly this you've completed her story. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure she's still um, recovering memories um, as we go. As more is reported about the crime, she's going to suddenly remember that that happened too. You pointed out, and I think this is important, and this is, doesn't have anything to do with Joe. This has to do with the FBI. The FBI dug some trenches around where the money was found, the beach on the Columbia River, and they discovered that the money was found at the top, and there was a dredged layer below that they could date, I don't know how they did, to October 1974. So somebody deposit what money was there was deposited long after the crime, because the, the skyjacking was in 1971. Right. So it became clear that the money wasn't buried there by D.B. Cooper unless he came back years later yeah. and buried it. So let's go to suspect number two. That's Barbara Dayton. We find some relatives of Barbara's in Tehachapi, California, which is actually not too far from here. Uh, they describe Barbara's sort of journey as a transgender woman, uh, didn't have the love and support of the entire family, went off to the Pacific Northwest. Sounds like Barbara fell out with her brother. And we're interviewing, I think, the the children, the daughter of the brother, so the niece, Barbara's niece, I guess. Um at the time of the hijacking, when the sketch artist comes out in the Bakersfield, California, Barbara's brother says, oh, my God, that's my brother. Okay. Because, again, as we described, this sketch has almost no remarkable characteristics. Right. It looks like the FBI agent who got the put the sketch together in the first place. Okay. So now it's time to check back in with the McCoy story. And if you remember, McCoy's the copycat, possibly, if not the same person who did both, who jumped out of a plane he skyjacked out of Colorado bound for L.A. 
Um, there's some stage business, which is quickly resolved about how allegedly the sentencing officer on McCoy's case had a theory of the case, which he never wanted to discuss with anyone. And people complain about how he won't talk to them. And then all of a sudden we're in his apartment talking to him. So I don't know how long it took them to get the guy on camera, but he doesn't seem remotely reluctant to shoot his mouth off about the DB Cooper. Story. Maybe they just didn't bring a camera when yeah. they were interviewed him the last time. Okay, so here's this story. Bernie Rhodes is now a t retired chief probation officer for Salt Lake City. At the time of McCoy's arrest, the FBI was convinced that McCoy did the second hijacking because he lost the money on the way down from the first hijacking. They, think the, they, they say the money was in a duffel bag with no handles and no zipper. So if he survived the plummet, he probably lost hold of the cash as he fell. McCoy didn't agree to any of this. McCoy insisted he was at home on the day of the Cooper hijacking. Rhodes was convinced he was lying. Um, McCoy uh, says they, they uh, Bruce, the backwoods eccentric, is in Team McCoy. He thinks McCoy did it. And he says they have proof that McCoy was in Las Vegas, Nevada the day after the Cooper skyjacking. And they think he was there trying to launder the money through the gambling tables. It's a only... Yes. Kind of a moot point because McCoy gets 45 years in prison for the 72 hijacking, the Colorado one. But he busts out of jail and gets apprehended and sent to a higher security prison. He busts out of there, too, and then goes on the lam for a while. And then FBI agent Nick O'Hara apprehends him and ends up killing him in a gun battle. He says because McCoy fired first, he has no regrets or second thoughts about taking him down. Which is relevant to this. I'm not sure how. I don't know. Um. So it's time to check in on the final suspect. Remember Marla Cooper, who was playing in the woods with her uncles? Remember the Rhine Maiden? <laughs> you lost me with that one, Quinn. It's a, it's a different, uh, it's a, another time. Another another podcast. Yes. It's our ancient Celtic podcast. Okay, she claims, Marla does, that the FBI told her that the story was so convincing she, they were going to close the case. Uh, Backwoods Bruce claims that they wanted to bury the case, which is why they were telling Marla that she had found the answer to it. But the fact was, in 1995, at Christmas, Marla asked her father what happened to her Uncle LD after that morning when she saw him bloodied up in the car. And her dad said to her, I think he's still alive, but he's in hiding. And she said, in hiding from who? And he said, the CIA, the FBI. And then he goes on to say, don't you remember he hijacked that airplane? Her dad died a month later and apparently called her several times saying she would remember what happened. So the final note of this story in this documentary, there's no solution here. Nobody knows who skyjacked the plane. But the author of the book Skyjack, who was interviewed earlier, said he finally got into the actual FBI files, which for him was like the greatest day of his life. He felt like he'd access Fort Knox. And he said that Until, mo most of the file was stuffed full of tips from literally every complaint anyone in the United States had ever had about anyone they tried to pin on D.B. Cooper. You should investigate my neighbor. You should investigate my brother. You should investigate my stepdad. Or they claimed that it was them. And that is where this documentary ends. But the FBI has closed the case. So I didn't. I actually couldn't put it together. Did the FBI say that Marla Cooper's uncle did it, or were they like, just stop fucking talking to us about this? He got the money. Maybe he survived the jump. Maybe he didn't. He didn't do it again. We don't know anybody fuck related. Right like, off. Fuck right off. Like it's just. So anyway, which suspect do you think did it? Okay, I've got two notes before I answer that question. Okay, one. 
what were the criteria for picking these four people <laughs> out of the hundreds of thousands of other people who've been accused or claimed to have committed the crime? I thought that was pretty random, and I didn't see any reason to pick these four particular people. Let, um, me, let me respond to that note just with a very okay. quick thing that I forgot to mention. During the title sequence, there is a larger, more extensive montage which shows there were actually a lot of other people they interviewed that didn't they didn't include. Didn't make the cut because it wasn't <laughs> as interesting because they were even less credible right. than this sack of yahoos. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there's that. And then the other question I have is I would like to know, and I don't know if it was – it wasn't a part of this account, but it would be an interesting piece of data for me. They Apparently, the $3,000 they did find matched the serial numbers of the money that D.B. Cooper uh, got as ransom on the, in the hijack. Did they ever find, did any of the other money with those serial numbers ever turn up anywhere else? Oh, yeah. I assume no, but who knows? Yeah. I have no idea, and I don't have that information. That would be really salient to me. If the money turned up elsewhere, then D.B. Cooper is alive, and if it never turned up elsewhere, then where is D.B. Cooper? You know what I mean? Like, that seems to me a lot more salient piece of information yes. that wasn't included in this report, and I would think it would be, well, not conclusive, certainly suggestive of the outcome of this story. Okay, and so now, yes. to answer the original question of these... So, I, you know, like, I think it's distinct possibility that the answer is none of these none yahoos, of that it was a different <laughs> yahoo. Um, but, none of these yahoos. But if I was going to pick any of them, like, <laughs> Joe just is making it up as she goes along. All of her facts are recovered years after the fact, like, the the story about the, the bag with the money in it. Like, yeah. she's either trying to romance the memory guy or... Uh -huh. Just keep him talking to her because mm. she's old and alone or whatever. But, um, yeah, I don't believe any a word out of her mouth. Everything she's saying is all recovered. Like, she called the FBI immediately from her husband's deathbed. I don't believe that. I don't believe it. I just didn't believe a word out of her yeah. mouth. Um, the Marla Cooper, I just, there's nothing to suggest any of that to me and so where is LD? Where did he go? Yeah. None of that was investigated or included in the story. It was just her saying, my father told me, and then he just dropped dead almost immediately, and so he can't prove anything that I'm saying yeah. other than me saying it. So I don't— Two of them rested on this idea of, like, garbled deathbed confessions. Like Marla Cooper with her dad, which right. they don't really highlight, and then Joe with Dwayne. Her, her uh, LD and mm -hmm. the other uncle. So there are three right. people who could corroborate her story, none of whom are available to corroborate her story. Right. So that seems pretty dubious to me. And, you know, the recovered memories. And then, so my scenario, my favorite scenario is... is he, are you actually going to pick one or are you I'm, coming up with your own? Given these, given okay. this, if these are my choices, then this is the scenario that I pick because it's the one thing that nobody ever accounts for in talking about D.B. Cooper. I don't believe D.B. Cooper was in this alone. Mm -hmm. Like, why would you be? That would be ridiculous. Right. So if I have to pick two of these people or any of these people, I pick Barbara mm -hmm. as D.B. Cooper and her accomplice as McCoy, who is waiting for her on the ground. And he only gets $10,000, which he takes to launder in Las Vegas. It's a great way to launder money. You buy chips. They don't check the whatchamacallit. Then you 
mumble around in the, mm. the the casino for a while, and then you cash in your chips, and you get different money, right. and you leave, and the money is laundered. So right. it's the best way, like, unless they're really running a constant check on um, on serial numbers, monetary serial numbers, it's a pretty good way to launder some money. I don't know if any of that was ever recovered. And again, I think that's a really important question. And then it explains... DB's grudge, it explains what the money was for, and it explains the disappearance of DB because DB is is now Barbara and there is no DB to find and may even have left the scene in the car with Richard in, you know, um, having resumed um, mm-hmm. her identity as the woman that she um, felt that she was. I, to me, that of what was presented, mm-hmm. that's the most that makes the most sense to me. Right. Um, I don't. I didn't necessarily th- th- come away from this. My biggest reaction was why these four. Right. Because I did not necessarily think, oh well, this totally sews up all of the questions. the The scenario that works best for me, I think you suggested, is he didn't jump off the plane at all. Hmm. <laughs> That he left the plane in Reno after they landed because Mm -hmm. that seemed to be a complete shit show. That doesn't seem like it would have been a problem at all. He went into whatever the the luggage area, changed into a uniform that he Mm -hmm. that he had and um, and walked out of the airport making people believe that he jumped out in Washington where they were looking for him. Instead, he was in Reno, a great place to launder two hundred thousand dollars. Um. And, you know, like that, that to me would be the best way to pull off this right. particular scenario. If you, if it happened, then, then you got away with it and they don't know it. But none of the scenarios seem to be particularly more believable than the others. They were just the least non believable. Right. Yeah. Of the, did you have a, a particular choice for? I have to say, I, I, I go about this differently than you because I'm not as smart as you. <laughs> and I, I, <laughs> I have. That is so not true. <laughs> I, go, I go a purely emotional route. Who had the motive to do this? And I, I, maybe I'm personally biased, but I think queer person who sees no other way of getting this money and resetting their life. Well, and that nothing to, me to would, and nothing to lose. And nothing to if lose. If I'm dead, then at least I won't have to be this. I won't I'm... be forced to live a gender identity that isn't mine. Right. Yeah, and that was that was the story that most moved me. I usually go about it saying what story would I tell in a novel? What story? And which is a different criteria from what I think is true because a lot of what's true is boring or horrible. Uh, but that was like wow, like that woman living her out her truth revealing that they were D.B. Cooper. Because that has always been the thing about this story that has captivated me to the extent that it has is the jumping out the plane is its own act of almost public defiance. It is a fuck you to the constraints of reality. Absolutely. It completely works for me. And it explains how Richard would then research with his friends how to do it better. Right. And than do it on his own because he was already a part of the first plot. And it also explains how um, Barbara would have had all of those very specific... One of the things they talked about that we didn't necessarily address was that Barbara had all very specific things about how you would go about jumping out of the plane, wind, speed, trajectory, steering your own way. Like, if you jump out of the plane at night in the um, in the rain, you need to aim yourself for the lights, yes, which you could see... 
at night and you couldn't see during the day. So it might actually be an advantage to jump out. So you land in the parking lot at right. the Walmart, right. which I know they didn't have then, but you know what I mean. You land somewhere lighted mm -hmm. and then, you know, you're, and that's where you're meeting your, you call them and say, okay, I'm at the Walmart parking lot in Tecumseh or wherever the hell you are. Okay. And they come and pick you up. What is so Let funny? Let me share something with you. Yes. I apparently had the text box open on our phone. So Siri has dictated a tran a terrible transcript of our entire podcast episode, which I just noticed as we were talking. I went which to we'll be posting online <laughs> immediately following today's. <laughs> I have to screen cap it so I don't delete it. <laughs> Sorry, this is too good. <laughs> oh my god, it goes on forever. I my god, <laughs> it's like the whole episode. Well, we haven't stopped talking for okay. a while, so I can see there would be a lot to dictate. Or so, I can't screen cap the whole thing. So I okay. agree with you. I think that yeah. The motivation for for Barbara to have done it is certainly the highest. Right. Absolutely. Because I like I think that um, what's her name's uh, uncle may well have robbed a bank or something like that to where he got shot or injured in the mm -hmm. doing of it. But right. the jumping out of a plane thing I just think is is <laughs> yeah, you know, like that doesn't work for him and the other ones. Just there's nothing yeah. to support those stories at all. McCoy, the only way he could be involved in the story was needing to get to Vegas to launder the money and having been the accomplice of somebody doing the first one. And I'm going to say, at the risk of being my gothic self, revealing my gothic DNA, I think something really bad happened to Marla Cooper. And I think this is a screen memory that she has concocted because the other details that leaked through her father saying you'll eventually remember what happened, like being in the woods, like there was something really creepy about her story. And I, I didn't think she was being deceptive. I just thought there was like a misunderstanding of something that happened when she was very, very young. And it had taken the shape of this narrative, and I just thought... Yeah, yeah. I think they killed somebody. I think yeah. her uncle killed somebody and was maybe injured in the process, and they got money from doing it. But yeah. I don't think there was anything about hijacking a plane. They may, that may be the cover story, that they right. said that, even though... Because it had just happened. Totally. As opposed to copying to what they actually did to get the money. That part seems credible. The rest of it is like, yeah, that didn't happen. So next week, the second half of this true crime pairing... And the end, the final episode in the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival will be a movie called The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. And it will answer the question of why Eric and I had not heard of a movie starring Robert Duvall and Treat Williams based on this very case. We'll find out why we had never heard of this movie next week when we discuss it. Or you'll find out. <laughs> you'll find out. We know already. We kind of already know. <laughs> we watch it in advance. We have some suspicions yes. that we will share with you on next week's exciting episode. Of Christopher and Eric. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.